Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. This episode features the 1982 film Monsignor. Now here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Hi, everybody. This is the second episode of year two of The Baton, and I wanted to kick off this episode by reading part of a letter written to me about a month ago by Gabriel Pratreka. Gabe wanted to let me know that he was a fan of the show and proceeded to tell me a story about what John Williams' music means to him. He writes, quote, John's music was a happy escape from the doldrums of adolescence, and to this day I am forever grateful to him for what he did to me through those years. I can remember one day in particular getting onto my school bus with the music in my head of the three villains from Krypton about to enter the Phantom Zone. He was always with me. I just listened to the Black Sunday episode and couldn't help breaking down as that was a score I discovered at around 12 or 13 while late night flipping through the channels and staying up to listen to it, mesmerized by a new Williams score I knew nothing about. For some reason, Black Sunday is high on my list and I got to tell him that when I met him once in 1999 at Tanglewood. I also shook his hand and got his autograph and remembers distinctly him saying to me, you know my interesting stuff. End quote. Thanks, Gabe, for sending me that letter. I really appreciate it. Stories like that really resonate with me, and it's just one of many that I often get via email. I invite my listeners to send me your own stories of either meeting John Williams or how you discovered his music. And it's no coincidence that I decided to read Gabe's letter on this episode because he told me that Monsignor is one of his favorite scores. So with that, let's talk about Monsignor. I mentioned this on the E.T. episode, but 1982 was a very, very busy year for John Williams. We know that the maestro always enjoyed working and never balked at the thought of having too much on his plate. In the end, he always managed to produce good work, and I think that was still the case in 1982 with E.T. and Monsignor. Monsignor was supposed to be a conversation starter among moviegoers when it was released, starring Christopher Reeve in his third non-Superman film role at the time. His previous two films not playing The Man of Steel were Somewhere in Time in 1980 and Death Trap earlier in 1982. Both were flops at the box office, but Death Trap was praised for the dynamic between Reeve and co-star Michael Caine, and Somewhere in Time became a cult classic almost 20 years later. Reeve was trying to do everything he could to distance himself from being typecast as an all-American hero, and he felt the role of Father John Flaherty in Monsignor was the perfect choice. In the film, he plays a Catholic priest who, at the outset, seems to be a clean-cut guy. But as an army chaplain in World War II, he breaks his vows and kills a few German soldiers. He is sent to the Vatican, where his disobeying of a major commandment is swept under the rug so he can become a prominent accountant in the Vatican. He is asked to bring more money into the Vatican, and he proposes a deal with an American mob boss living in Rome to deal in the black market. To do this, Father Flaherty breaks another commandment by lying and assuming the name Lieutenant Finnergan. And as soon as he does this, he and his friend Varisi pick up a group of nuns-to-be in the rain. 
Flaherty is instantly attracted to one of them, a French woman named Clara. Later, they make love while Flaherty manages to keep his identity as a priest secret from her. Now, it's a lot of heavy stuff, don't you think? But not really so much when you watch it in the film. If you know anything about the Catholic Church, you know that almost no one is without sin in the Vatican. But it appears that the cardinals and even the pope in this film are fine with disregarding all the commandments if it means a healthy bank account. The movie was directed by Frank Perry, who had directed the cult classic Mommy Dearest. You know the movie I'm talking about. What's wire-hangers doing in this closet when I told you no wire-hangers ever? So Perry was hired for Monsignor because Frank Yablins, who also produced Mommy Dearest, read a script for Monsignor and decided to get it made. There's usually some personal connection to the film for John Williams, be it with the producer or director, but there seems to be none here. Perhaps his affiliation with 20th Century Fox, the studio that distributed Monsignor, was the connection. Based on the original timeline of production, Williams was going to be able to work on the score over the course of about two months. But the timeline for work on his next project, Return of the Jedi, was moved up by about a month, giving Williams just three weeks to write and record the score in July and August 1982. There wasn't much of a score to write anyway. It's less than 30 minutes of music in the film, including the music for the opening credits and end credits. It's not the least amount of music he has written for a film, but it's certainly a significantly smaller amount than what he had been writing for quite a while. Even Heartbeeps had more music. At least Williams made the most of it by hiring the London Symphony Orchestra to play the score. The film is a straight drama without special effects or gruesome deaths, the first time Williams has worked on a movie like this since Conrack, way back in 1974. The score revolves mostly around a main theme that is introduced on a harpsichord accompanied by cellos over a black screen in the opening credits. It consists of a motif on descending notes that immediately tell us that this is not going to be a happy story before we even begin.
There really isn't any music in the film until the 25-minute mark, when Flaherty is reunited with his friend Barisi, who both grew up in New York City together. At this point, Flaherty has become a fixture in the Vatican, and Barisi is now stationed in Rome with the war still going on. The music has a Baroque flavor to it as Varisi takes Flaherty for a drive through Rome to a secret hideout for Varisi's black market operation. Once Flaherty comes up with the idea of funneling black market money through the Vatican, he and Varisi drive to Sicily to meet a mob boss who can help with the operation. The drive through the Italian countryside is scored with an airy melody using the entire string and woodwind section of the London Symphony Orchestra. This is nice music, but it was not composed by John Williams specifically for the film. It was part of a composition he planned to debut earlier that summer with the Boston Pops called Esplande Overture. If the liner notes for the 2007 CD release of Monsignor are to be believed, the short time Williams had to write the score meant he couldn't come up with an original composition for this scene in time. This compelled him to paste in parts of the overture into the score. And the overture was never performed in 1982 because Williams was indeed pressed for time and wasn't able to finish it between working on E.T. and Monsignor. Williams finished the composition 
and debuted his Esplande Overture in May 1983. You'll remember that I mentioned the love affair Flaherty takes on with the French woman. Clara, played by Genevieve Bujold, is a nun in training, and once Flaherty decides he wants to pursue Clara in the guise of his alter ego, Lieutenant Finnergan, he takes her to Verisi's apartment to make love to her. The theme that was introduced in the opening credits returns to identify itself as the film's love theme, and it has to be the most depressing love theme John Williams has ever composed. It is played on harpsichord as Clara slowly undresses, and you could feel the regret hanging over Flaherty as he is about to put aside his vow of chastity. And about 20 movie minutes later, we get a massive scene that was filmed in the Basilica of Saints John and Paul in Rome. This scene features Father Flaherty as one of hundreds of people getting a blessing from the Pope. One of those other people is Clara, who has now officially become a nun. The music is what you might expect to hear in a church for this sort of occasion, an organ and a choir singing the Gloria Latin Mass.
But then, as Clara is walking back to her seat after getting her blessing, she sees Flaherty among other priests. She is so stunned that she stops in her tracks and simply stares at Flaherty while he tries to divert his eyes to hide his shame. At this point, what we all thought was music played inside the church as source music turns into underscore as the full London Symphony Orchestra joins in with the chorus. It's amazingly powerful music without the visuals, but when paired with the unspoken torment we see in Clara's eyes, it is gut-wrenching. In the online discussions of this score that I have read, people have been divided over the music for the church scene, saying it was either Williams' best composition or his worst. The scene and the music that plays in it are definitely the highlights of the film, and it helps that there is no dialogue in the scene to dilute the music. So several priests noticed the interaction between Flaherty and Clara in the church, but it seems like it was, again, swept under the rug with his other digressions. Flaherty asked to leave the church, but his boss, Cardinal Santoni, convinces him to stay. We get an instrumental reprise of the Gloria music as Santoni seemingly absolves Flaherty, and Flaherty vows complete obedience to the church.
I always wonder what happened to Clara. Nobody in the movie seems to care. She confronted Flaherty after she found out his secret, then disappeared completely from the movie. Though the romance subplot did help produce an interesting love theme by John Williams, I think that part of the story could have been removed and we would not have lost anything in the story. The film's end credits gives us a reprise of that love theme, both on harpsichord and finally on trumpet. If you think the trumpet performance of the main theme has some echoes of the theme from The Godfather, you aren't wrong. I felt that too, and I think that might have been Williams' intent to use the love theme to touch on the Italian mafioso storyline. Maurice Murphy, the principal trumpet player in the London Symphony Orchestra, played those trumpet solos, and it shows a wonderful command of the instrument that he's also able to showcase in the bigger scores Williams wrote. To get a true solo and credit on the soundtrack release, had to mean a lot to Murphy. When John Williams was finished recording the score to Monsignor in August 1982, the plan was to put the film into theaters the following February. But it seems like 20th Century Fox sensed that this would not be a hit any time of the year, and gave the film a quiet release in October 1982. Critics hated it. The public didn't like seeing Christopher Reeve in a shady role. And apparently... Others hated the score. The Golden Raspberry Awards began in 1981 as a way to honor the worst movies of the year. In that first year, John Barry's music for The Legend of the Lone Ranger won Worst Score of 1981. The following year, the score to Monsignor was nominated alongside two Ennio Morricone scores, Butterfly and The Thing, as well as scores from The Pirate Movie and Death Wish 2. Kit Haynes' score for the pirate movie won the Golden Raspberry for Worst Score in 1982. And I can't back that up because I have never even heard of the pirate movie. The Golden Raspberry nomination, though, for Monsignor marks the only time John Williams, the greatest film composer in the world, has been nominated for this award. But perhaps that may be because the category Worst Original Score was discontinued in 1985. Another category at the Raspberries was Worst Original Song. 
and some might have expected the song If We Were In Love to be among the nominees for 1982. That song was written for the film Yes, Giorgio, with lyrics by Alan and Marilyn Bergman, and music by John Williams. Williams was asked at some point to write the score for this film, but he was too busy to commit to it and his work with the Boston Pops. However, Williams agreed to work with the Bergmans again for this song, and I believe he recorded it around the same time he was in Los Angeles composing the score to Monsignor. I don't care how busy you are. Writing a song for Luciano Pavarotti, one of the world's best tenors, is a great honor, and Williams certainly couldn't pass it up. But the song just didn't work. It plays in the film in voiceover as Pavarotti and his love interest, played by Catherine Harold, are going on a hot air balloon ride. Hearing Pavarotti sing in English is a bit jarring to me, and I think that's the only real downside to the song. skies be any bluer than they are could our smiles be any warmer kiss be any sweeter if we were in love and could we seem any closer at west Dream more than we are dreaming If we were in love If we were in love You'd think we'd know it When people are in love They tend to show Yes, Giorgio did worse at the box office than Monsignor. Monsignor's score did not get any kind of peer recognition at awards time, but If We Were In Love was nominated at the Golden Globes and was Williams' first nomination for the Oscar for Best Original Song in nine years. It lost to the wildly popular Up Where We Belong from An Officer and a Gentleman. Williams probably wasn't too upset about losing this award at the Oscars because he received an Oscar for scoring E.T. earlier that night. There was no time for Williams to contemplate what went right and what went wrong with Monsignor. As the film was getting trashed in the media, he was working on what was believed to be the final film of the Star Wars saga. And that's what we will be examining in the next episode. Until then, I hope you'll consider writing a review of this podcast on iTunes. And if you'd like, send me an email to jeffswim at aol.com. As Gabe found out, I really do respond to every email I receive. This has been great, everyone. Thanks for the privilege of allowing me to take you on this journey through John Williams' illustrious career. Until next time, the baton is down.